All right, we begin part 33 in our study on law and gospel. Just a quick note so everyone realizes, I don't know if everyone has realized this, but uh, Christmas falls on what day this year? Does anybody know? On a Sunday. So guess what that means? Nothing changes for us, all right? Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night. And if it was a, if Christmas fell on any other day of the week, what would happen? We'd still be at church because we'd still have a service. All right, so we don't cancel church for Christmas. It's the most bizarre thing that I've ever seen happen in Christianity. Jesus is the reason for the season, but don't come to church on Christmas. That makes no sense to me, but okay. All right, because a lot will just do a Christmas Eve service and then do what? Cancel services because... It's, we're, we're celebrating Jesus by nobody coming to church. It's just weird. It's just weird to me. The church is the bride of Christ, and we close it down for, to celebrate Christmas. I, it just makes no sense. It would be better for us just to say what? That we celebrate the federal holiday known as Christmas, not the incarnation or the birth of Christ. It, to me, that would just make more, more sense. Like We're just going to celebrate the federal holiday, and we're not going to have anything to do. I tell you, one of the worst things that ever happened was Christmas being made a federal holiday. It's the worst thing that ever happened, because as soon as that happened, it turned it into something other than the incarnation, right? And then, we, on one hand, Christians try to fight the culture about it, and then we turn right around and then show them what? That we bought into it because... Try to find the only church you can find open on Christmas is what? Catholic. The Protestants are like, <laughs> what do you think we? You think we're spiritual or something? We got better things to do. Why we? While we yell at say Target for not calling it Merry Christmas, it makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to me. But just so that you know, this year we don't have to do anything different. We'll just be here for all the services. Sound good? All right. I hope so. Now. We're on law and gospel. Which thesis are we on? If you missed the last hour, then you have no clue. If you're here for the last hour, we are on thesis number five. Thesis number five, all right? I can't review everything that we've been working on. Please go back and listen to everything that we've done. Um, you definitely want to go back and listen to the one we did on law and gospel and the Lord's Supper because some very important distinctions and changes that was made there. So please go back and listen to that. Definitely go listen to the last hour. Listen to all of them. Please make sure you're listening to all of them. I I try not to say, I try my best, I try my best uh, to separate everything I do on the podcast from you guys, right? What I try to do is like, okay, the podcast is there. If you listen, great. If you don't, then it doesn't impact you here. But on this particular subject, I'm trying to convince you to listen to all of them, all of them, so that you can know exactly what's going on. If you don't listen to anything else, that's great. But if you listen to this, this is very, 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 very important for us. Does that make sense? Okay, good. All right, here we go. This is number five. This is where the fun really begins, okay? This is number five. Here we go. The first manner of confounding law and gospel is the one most easily recognized, all right? The first way that law and gospel gets confounded, gets confused, gets messed up, it is the one that everyone should be able to recognize, everyone should understand it, everyone should see it a mile away. But I stress the word should, because in most churches, this is the one that happens, and we're going to blame the Catholics for this, but... uh, (laughs) It's not just the Catholics, all right? Here we go. So, the first manner of confounding law and gospel is the one most easily recognized, and it was adopted, for instance, by Roman Catholicism, and they name a bunch of other uh, groups that I'm not going to go into, all right? And here's what it consists of. Everybody ready? That Christ is represented as a new Moses or lawgiver. And the gospel is, to, is turned into a doctrine of meritorious works. Well, at the same time, those who teach that the gospel is the message of free grace is condemned and anathematized, as done by Roman Catholics at the Council of Trent and other councils, okay? So everybody understand this. That what The first way that we confound this is what do we do? We take Christ and we turn him into what? A new Moses and a lawgiver. He becomes a lawgiver, and he gives out law, which turns the gospel into a doctrine of meritorious works. 
Okay? And then anyone who teaches free grace is condemned or anathematized. Now, let me just give you an example in the Protestant world, right? Here's an example of the Protestant world. Jesus is a lawgiver. He's the new Moses. And where does he give us his law? Sermon on the Mount. And how do we interpret the Sermon on the Mount? But how is it typical? I'm going with the typical Protestant way of, of, of this problem. It's proof of our salvation. How do you know you're saved? Your obedience or your keeping or pursuing of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as soon as you hear this, you have to know long gospel is being obliterated, the gospel is being destroyed, and if you are even remotely honest with yourself, if you read the law, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, when you get to chapter 7, your conclusion should be what? That you are going to hell. Okay? Uh, I don't understand how people can read the Sermon on the Mount, and, and it's typically taught in churches like, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And someone should raise their hand and go, nobody can do it. Because what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew chapter 5, verse what, everyone? Verse 48. Be ye perfect, as your heavenly Father is imperfect. If you hear a sermon where Jesus tells you to be perfect, you have to immediately go, I need a new way of interpreting this, don't I? I need a new way of interpreting it. And I can't interpret it that this proves my salvation because then what would be the required proof for my salvation? Perfection. And is anyone perfect? No. All right? I can just start with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes should condemn you. Look at it. Go to Matthew 5 really quick. Just look at it. We've done this already once in this series. We've probably done it twice in this series. This will be the, probably the third time. But I, I, can't, I can't do this enough. Sometimes when we, when in churches, I, I, man, I just, sometimes I don't know what has happened to Christianity, but okay. When we read passages that say, blessed if you do this or blessed if you do that, do you ever feel blessed by those passages? Psalm chapter 1, what's the, what's the requirement to be blessed? Three things you're not to do. Everybody, look, go to Psalm 1 really quick. Let's just do this. We'll just do, look at both of them. Three things you're not to do and one thing you are to do. Okay, you don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Don't stand in the way of sinners. Okay, that, those are three requirements if we want to be blessed, Right? Okay, but then what else are you to do? Those are things you're not to do. And you meditate day and night. Now, I, you know what, how many Christians I see who don't even accomplish the first three, but I rarely meet Christians who meditate on God's word day and night. You know how I know? Just listen to them talk. If you meditate on God's word day and night, what should be like the first thing you talk about pretty much all, I mean, all you talk about? It's going to be God's word, right? Because it's there. It's just, it's all you're thinking about, thinking about God's word. So immediately you should say, I'm not blessed. But does anyone read it that way? No. How is it preached? It's preached that do this and you will be blessed. That's a law-based approach. What would be a gospel approach to this? Thank you. Law is like, this is what God demands for you to be blessed. And you should say, woe is me. And then who is then the blessed person in Psalm 1? Christ. Go through through the first three things again. What was the first one? Does not walk in the counsel. Did Christ walk in the counsel of the ungodly? Second, stand in the way of sinners. No. Third, sit in the seat of the scornful. He did none of those things. Did he meditate on God's word day and night? He's like, my will is what? My bread is to the, the will of God. He did those things. In, me, in him, guess what? I am blessed. Because all of those things are attributed to whom? Me. Now go to the Beatitudes. 
We'll just go through a, a couple of these. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek or the humble. Some translations say humble. Now, already I'm in trouble. Are you truly humble? Oh, come on. You know, you know yourself rises up constantly. Constantly. So I'm already, now I'm already feeling a little nervous. Are you feeling a little nervous? Okay, I may get the morning down, okay? It depends on what I'm supposed to be. Poor in spirit, maybe I can get that. Humble, I'm getting a little concerned, right? Next. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, come on now, come on. Come on. If I was to write down the things you hunger and thirst for the most, first of all, it's going to be what? Come on. Food. Okay, thank you. Thank Someone's willing to admit it, right? Because I bet you never miss a meal, but you probably miss a lot of other spiritual things, correct? Yes? All right, come on. We all know that, right? Okay, we all know that. Because in theory, what should it be? Before I eat food, I'm going to spend time in God's word. Now, I can say that and people are like, that's a great theory. Nobody's doing that. Correct? So, so, and it, so, so food, whatever things do you hunger? And some of you hunger and desire sleep because I hear you talk about it. Right? You think if you don't have it, you're going to die or some weird nonsense. Okay, right? Money? Shelter, companionship, right? I can go on, I can go on and on. There's a lot of things you hunger and thirst for. I guarantee you, far more than you do righteousness. Are you feeling a little uncomfortable yet? Okay, what's the next one? Oh, blessed are the merciful. How merciful are you guys? And then the next one, you should just say, I'm done. Close the book and go home. Blessed are the pure in heart. But we preach it like this can just be done. We can just do this. We can just do this. We can just do this. Or we preach it like what? Not only can you do it, not only is it attainable, this proves your salvation. Well, if this proves your salvation, what should you do? Just go home. Because we're done. But who did all of those things? Christ. The one, the blessed man in the beatitude is Christ. The blessed man in Psalm 1 is Christ. It's only in him that we are blessed. And we are not blessed because we do these things. We are blessed because they were done for us. Now you say, so does it mean we shouldn't have to do anything? It should be what we strive for. The point is, even in your striving, it would never be sufficient to prove your salvation because for it to prove your salvation would require what? Perfection in these things. And you're never going to be perfect in those things. And, and, and does the Sermon on the Mount just get more and more difficult from there? I mean, come on. Nobody keeps the Sermon on the Mount. Nobody. But... The way it's preached, I, I, I'm, I'm just to this day blown away by, just go listen to random sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, just, and then come back and tell me how they handled it. It's insane, all right? So, so far so good? All right, so let's make sure we understand this. What's the first way law and gospel gets merged together? By presenting Christ as a lawgiver, and that the gospel becomes basically a doctrine of meritorious work, something we do. What do we do? We keep the Sermon on the Mount. This is how it shows up in the Protestant world. The book is going to focus on the Catholic world, but since I'm not preaching to Catholics, I'm going to try to make sure we see how it shows up in our world. Right? Does that make sense? So far, so good? All right. Now, let's start the first paragraph. The decrees of the Council of Trent. Everybody understands the Council of Trent. Do you have the dates for the Council of Trent, Sarah, in our church history book? I don't have them memorized. Council of Trent? What year did you say? Okay. <laughs> okay. Council of Trent is counter-reformation, right? That means it has to happen 1545. And does, does it have the end date? 
Yeah, it's a long time. It's a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. Okay, 1545. Now, everybody understand what happens in 1517? Martin Luther? All right. Of course, we don't know historically if he actually nailed. I know all the arguments out there now today that he didn't nail the 95 Theses. But whether he did or didn't, they were published, right? And that sparks the Reformation. And and because the Reformation started, what happened inside the Catholic Church? Counter-Reformation. Very good. All right. So they take some of the things that Luther was saying, and they, they do try to purge some of that and purify some of that. But they do, one thing they do is reestablish and restate dogmatically Catholic teaching that was being called into question and being rejected because of the Reformation. And one of the things they're going to reestablish is their understanding of salvation, right? They're going to be dogmatic, and they're going to reject the the Reformed idea, all right? So, and I think you really have two clear streams that kind of break out into Christianity. You're going to have the Trent stream, right? And you're going to have the Reformation stream. Now, these are going to break off into a million different little creeks and ponds and tanks or whatever we want to call them. But you have two streams, okay? All right? Sounds good, but somewhere, somewhere these two merge into what is, what is basically becomes a form of evangelicalism. It's a merging of Catholicism and Reformation theology, and it merges together. And what gets merged together? Law and gospel. Okay? Clearly. I mean, it, it happens big time, okay? And, we, and then we can get a whole historical teaching here. But at the Council of Trent, so everybody knows the Council of Trent. Everybody's good to go. What year? 1545. Everybody got that down? Council of Trent, 1545. Okay? If, you, if you want to talk about significant events in church history, you need to know the Council of Trent. Okay. What are some things you need? Well, we can, go, we can create a timeline of all the things you need to know in church history, but everybody should know this one. And you should at least spend some time reading the decrees of the Council of Trent, for crying out loud. Everybody should, we, maybe we'll have to just do more study on the Council of Trent, but everybody should know it, okay? Everybody good? Now, the decrees of the Council of Trent speak of the gospel as containing the doctrines of salvation, and everyone is good with that, right? Yes? Does everybody agree the, do, the gospel contains the doctrine of salvation? Yes, okay, sounds good so far. However, they add immediately that the gospel, are you ready for these words? Prescribes morals. That the gospel prescribes morals. Prescribes. It's prescribing, here is some morals. This is how you are to live. That the gospel is giving you basically law. Telling you what you must and you can and you cannot do. Everybody got that? Yes? Okay. They they evidently do not intend to accept the gospel in the true sense of the word. In the meaning in which they understand it, it is best a law such as Moses proclaimed. In other words, according to them, the gospel basically becomes a law. Becomes a law. So make sure everybody understands this. If you listen to, if you study Catholic theology, listen to Catholic radio, if you know what to listen for, they will say, you are not saved according to works. Right? They will say that. What do they mean by that? Old Testament law. Good. Someone, someone knows this, right? Old Testament law. But that does not remove the law of whom? Christ, which is established in the New Testament. So within the gospel, there is a moral system. There is a law that is prescribed, which you must keep. You are saved from the Old Testament law, not the new law under Christ. He is a lawgiver. He's a new Moses. And sometimes, for some weird reason, Protestants can't figure out this basic understanding in Catholic theology. It doesn't take much to figure this out and to confuse it. Well, we condemn Catholics for that, and then we turn right around in the Protestant church and say the exact same thing. Do you claim to be saved? Yes. How do I know you're saved? 
by keeping the law. Not the Old Testament law, but the law of Christ. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Then this proves you're saved. Now, we would say, it doesn't save us, but it proves we're saved. But if I don't do it, then it is required for me to be saved. So basically, we're just playing semantics. And again, if I look to... Now, we talked about this in the first hour. I want to make sure everyone in this church has this down. If I look to Bobby, I'm like, okay, Bobby, you claim to be saved? All right. Wait, if you're saved, you have to do these things to prove that you're saved. The minute I say that, what am I now teaching about justification? An infused righteousness, right? Because I'm saying now that justification does what? Changes, Bobby. Now that means I'm not saying, because if I say by an imputed righteousness, does an imputed righteousness change, Bobby? No, it's imputed. Meaning what? Just accredited to his account. Bobby is still what? A sinner. But if it's an infused righteousness, then what happens? Now, your righteousness is put in, Bobby, and then there is a change. So the minute you look for the change, you've destroyed imputed righteousness. Not only that, if I look to the change, what, what, if I'm going to be honest, if I'm going to judge you based off a change, what's required in that change? Perfection. Because God's standard is what? Perfection. Oh, let me get, I'll just say, it's repeated in the old and it's repeated in the new. Be ye holy as God is holy. Well, if that's the standard, Bobby, do you ever meet that standard? No. So then what do we do? We come back and say, well, but, 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 it's not that you'll ever be perfect. It's just that you're trying to be perfect. Well, what does it even look like? And we talked about in the first hour, if you lived in the times of Jesus, right? Who would you have looked to and go, man, those people are proving they are saved? The Pharisees. You were like, man, look at them. Look at them, keeping the law, doing good. And who would you have thrown out? Tax collectors? The harlot? You would have said, not saved, not saved, not saved, not saved. And who did Jesus ultimately condemn? Wow. Seemingly to imply that you can't determine someone's salvation simply by what they... How can that be possible? See how we destroy everything? We turn it into a law. Let's let's continue. Are you ready for this paragraph? Okay, everybody got their thinking caps on? If Christ came into the world to publish new laws to us, he might as well stayed in heaven. That's a powerful statement. Yeah. yeah, if he came to publish new laws that I'm supposed to somehow keep, there was no point in coming here. There's no point in coming. Why was there no point in coming here? Say, say that, Stephen. Oh, thank you. We already had plenty of laws, did we not? Plenty of laws in the Old Testament. If you don't, just go from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament and just make a list of every law. Do this, do this, don't do this. You know how you're going to have hundreds I don't need another. I didn't need someone to come give me a different law. I didn't need someone to come to give me a better law. Okay? I didn't need someone to come water it down. What I needed was what? Salvation. So if Christ came into the world to publish new laws, he might as well stay in heaven. Moses had already given us so perfect a law that we could not fulfill it. That's how perfect the law was. Moses' law was so perfect that no one could keep it. Does the Old Testament prove that right? Yes, everyone violated it over and 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 over again. Correct? Now, if Christ had given us additional laws, they would have had they would drive us to despair. If any, in other words, we're already in despair, right? We can't get much worse off because Moses' law condemns us, condemns us. If Christ brings just one extra law, I'm even in more despair, yes? I have no hope. 
I mean, I'm completely finished at that point. The very term gospel contradicts this view. We know that Christ himself has called his word gospel, for he says in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. In order that the meaning which he connected to the word gospel might be understood, he states the contents of the gospel in these concrete terms, he who believes and is baptized, etc. If the teaching of Christ were a law, it would not be glad tidings, but sad tidings. If, if we were told to preach the gospel, would that be good news if it's requiring the law? No. If he came to give me new law and gospels connected with the law, it would not be good news. It would be horrific news. It would be horrible news because no one would be and no one would be saved. Everybody got that? That's so important. All right. Um, Turning to the Old Testament, we see even there what the character of the teaching of Christ is. We read in Genesis 3.15, he, the woman's seed, shall bruise your head. The Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior, is not come for the purpose of telling us what we are to do or, or what works we are to perform in order to escape from the terrible dominion of darkness, sin, and death. These feats, the Messiah is not going to leave for us to accomplish, but he will do all that himself He shall bruise the serpent's head, means that he shall destroy the kingdom of the devil. All that man has to do is know that he has been redeemed, he has been freed from his prison, and that he has no more to do than to believe, accept the message, and rejoice over it with his heart. If the text were to read, he shall save you, that would not be so comforting. Or if if it read, you must believe in him, We should be at a loss to know what is meant by this faith. In other words, the point is the text is saying that he did save us. He did save us. He finished the work. He accomplished it. Right? All we have to do is put our faith in it. But the minute you say, well, he did, but you have to do this and this and this to prove it, then he didn't save me. He didn't save me. It's just probation. God saved you. You get out of prison. And now you better, you've got to meet the requirements of the probation. And if you don't meet the requirements of the probation, what happens? You go back in jail and you were never saved. So technically you never got out of jail. You just thought you were out of jail. Until you don't meet some list of rules created by some pastor somewhere of what you should or shouldn't do. This first gospel was the fountain from which the believers in the Old Testament drew their comfort. It was important for them to know there is one coming who will not only tell us what we must do to get to heaven. One coming who will not only tell us what we must do to get to heaven. No, the Messiah will do all himself to bring us there. That's the point. The Old Testament was telling us what Christ would do, what God would do, not what we have to do to get it. Not how we get it, but that he would accomplish it. He was going to crush the head of the serpent. Not we. The head of the serpent was not going to be crushed by your efforts, but by the finished work of Jesus Christ. He either did it or he didn't do it. We say he did it, but then we have to do something to prove that it was for us. And I don't know how I'm supposed to prove that I have it, considering he did it for me and declared me righteous without me being changed. That's the whole point, right? Now that the rule of the devil has been destroyed, anything that I must do cannot come into consideration. If the devil's dominion is demolished, I am free. There is nothing for me to do but to appropriate this to myself. That is what scripture means when he says believe. That means claim as your own what Christ has acquired. That's all that when we believe, that's what we're doing. We're simply claiming and acquiring what has already been done. It's complete. It's finished. It's not, there's nothing else we have to do, can do, should do. And again, you can't prove that by what you do because it is done for you. Right? It's, it's, we, we, we've so messed this up. Right? On one hand, we say all of these words. You can go to any church and they say all of the right words, right? Jesus died for you. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because Christ alone. Everybody says amen. And then somewhere you just wait for it. 
But, the minute they say that, they just negate everything they just said. They'll say, but, you've got to do this and this and this to prove that you got it. Well, if I've got to do something to prove that I got it, then it wasn't done for me. Guess what? Now he did something in me and I've got to prove that it's happened in me by what I do. And that is infused righteousness. That is Roman Catholicism. So you see somewhere what happened. The two streams came together. Christ is a lawgiver. And how do you know you're saved? By keeping that law. Meaning that you were not saved by an imputed righteousness, but an infused righteousness. Which destroys Protestant, like, it destroys the gospel, but it, destroy, it just tells Luther that Luther wasted his time. Luther was a failure because we've just, re, we went right back to Rome. We, we just changed the terminology. We just changed the terminology. So let me make it, let's make sure we get this. Imputed righteousness, what does it change? Do I? My position in Christ. Imputed right. I want to make sure, if you don't write anything down, write this down. Imputed righteousness only changes my position in Christ. Does imputed righteousness make you better? Does it make you more righteous? Does it make you more godly? No. Does it make you more holy? More loving? No. None. If you say, if you argue that it does, you're not talking imputed. Imputed is just something accredited to my account. Right? Righteousness is accredited to Bobby's account. It doesn't make Bobby righteous. Does everybody understand that? So therefore, guess what I cannot judge to determine if Bobby has imputed righteousness? Action. Because imputed does not change the action. Imputed only changes position or standing before God. Does that make sense? So I can't come along and go, Bobby, Jesus came and he gave us his law. Now, Catholics would say, you got to keep that law in order to be saved. Protestants just say, I have to keep that law in order to prove that I'm saved, right? So in order to, so the Catholics, it's order to be saved. We say in order to prove that we're saved. But if I got to do it to prove that I'm saved, I'm really saying that I'm saved by doing it. And, and you can say, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. You're just playing semantics. Imputed righteousness says, Bobby, what, what does Bobby have to do to prove that he's saved? Just say that I believe in Christ and his finished work. You say, well, that, that's not acceptable. Okay, I understand. I know why you don't like it. And so what is your option? Stop playing around in some Protestant church where you're pretending Go back to Rome. Just go back to the Catholic Church. But Protestants don't want to go back to the Catholic Church. Why do they not want to go back to the Catholic Church? They don't get to, they don't get to run around claiming they know what the Bible means. Because the church gets to determine what the Bible means and a, no good Protestant wants to give up the right to be able to tell me what the Bible means, right? I mean, come on. I've been a pastor long enough to know that Protestants' favorite pastime is to tell me what the Bible means. All my study doesn't mean anything. Everyone is going to tell me what it means, and they know. They, want, they don't want to give up that option, right? They don't want to give up that option. They, they, they've almost basically adopted the Catholic understanding of justification, but they still want to be able to say, you're wrong, pastor. This is what it means based off my, not, well, I, I haven't done anything, but it's what it means. And you're just like, okay, well, whatever. That's basically what, uh, you say that's, that's a very jaded view of it, but it's the truth. It's the truth. Christ did not come to bring us another law. Let's continue. All right? They've given us a lot of information here. Where else do we want to go? We're going to skip down. Um, where do we want to go? So uh, there, um, well, we've read all of that. Now, now that the rule of the devil has been destroyed, okay, there's nothing we can do to consideration. If the devil's dominion is demolished, I am free. There is nothing for me to do but to believe, all right? Then go to Jeremiah 31. Oh, boy. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Not Jeremiah 31. No. 
Jeremiah 31 is where all of our problems started. Okay, Jeremiah 31. Oh man, it's already 12 o'clock. All right, we got to finish this paragraph. I doubt we're going to be able to finish this paragraph. All right, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Oh boy. Oh, this chapter. Jeremiah 31. We're probably going to find ourselves in conflict here with this book, I bet. But all right, Jeremiah 31. Let's go all the way down to, where do we want to go? I almost want to make us work through the whole chapter, but that's okay. Um, we'll go to verse 31. That's where you knew we were going, right? Okay, all right. And just please note, if anyone, I'm just going to say this online, and anyone here, if you want to argue with me about Jeremiah 31, look, t- send all the emails you want. Just anyone, just go through the book of Jeremiah before you get to chapter 31. And guess what you're going to hear? You're going to hear Judah, Babylon. It's it's, it's the context of Judah and Israel and Babylon captivity. It's all literal, real, right? Was the Babylonian captivity real? Yes. Was Judah a real... A real part of Israel? Yes. Was it, all of it's literal, 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 literal. And then we get to this covenant and people lose their ever-living minds in their hermeneutics. And it turns, it just, it goes crazy. It goes crazy, right? Here we go. Jeremiah 31, 31. Look, I'm going to, I'll go to the King James here. I'm going to read it from this translation and we'll get two different perspectives. Sound good? All right. It says, look, the days are coming. How does the King James read? Okay, behold, the days are come, or the days are coming, right? This is the Lord's declaration. How's the King James read? Saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, let me stop right here, just so that you know, in church history, Some believe that the term house of Israel and house of Judah does not reference Israel or Judah. All of a sudden it stops being literal. That it represents what? The church. And the church is the, in this theory, new Israel. The spiritual Israel. Okay? In fact, most Christians, even if they are not that precise or detailed in their theology they still will take this and make it about whom? Us. I'm blown away by how people just go to this and just immediately make, I understand the New Testament connects the new covenant to us in certain ways. But we got to be very careful. First and foremost, this new covenant is made to whom? The text says it. And the fact that it says house of, and then mentions both Israel and Judah, seems to indicate the text is making sure we understand who he's talking about, right? Because I guarantee nobody would have been going, oh, that's for this church thing. Nobody would have thought that, right? In fact, what comfort would that have been to them? This is comforting them from what? What have they encountered? Babylonian captivity. This is to give them some kind of comfort, right? Right? So what does he say? Going to make a covenant? This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. All right, so this is going to be different than the covenants before. And this is where I start having problems with covenant theology because covenant theology says, how many covenants are there? Covenant of works, which was where? In the garden, then a covenant of grace, and then all the covenants after that are different administrations of that same covenant. Well, the only problem is he makes it very clear that this is a new one, not like the others, distinct from the others. So this begins to where a covenant theology begins to unravel a little bit in my mind. All right. But let's let's go on. Right. Uh, I'm going to make a uh, not like the ones I made with your ancestors. Right. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master. How does the King James put it? Husband, but it says that they broke it. They didn't fulfill it, right? They let it down. Yes? Okay, why, why did they fall, fall short? Because anytime God makes a covenant and puts any requirement on us, we're always going to fall short of it. And remember in Deuteronomy, 
Some call it the Palestinian covenant or the land covenant. Hey, if you do this, 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 you get all of these blessings. If you don't do this, this, and this, you get all of the curses. Did they do all the wrong things? Did they get the curses? Yes. And those curses showed up in captivity, right? Agreed? Why did they fall short of it? Because nobody can fulfill God's law. Not even Israel. Nobody can. Even when God's present, they couldn't fulfill it. Isn't that the most most mind-blowing thing when you read Exodus? God is literally there. Shekinah glory in the tabernacle. Have they seen all the miracles? And they still did what? Doing what I want. Because the sinful, the sinful nature cannot even be curbed by God's physical presence, manifestation of his power, and the hearing of his voice cannot change the depravity of man's heart. Now, if, if I'm all of a sudden supposed to be able to prove I'm saved by what I do... I don't even have all those advantages, do I? Right? That's just amazing. Okay, go on. So the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration, I will put my teaching within them, write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord for they will... All know me from the least to the greatest of them and the Lord's declaration, I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sins. That seems like a total transformation of them on the inside. Now, I believe primarily, first and foremost, this is for whom? Israel. And when will this be ultimately fulfilled? When all Israel will be Saved, And this may fit in with the millennial kingdom. Now, I know that goes full-blown dis- dispensational, but I don't care about the title. I just know that it's hard for me to rip that out of its context and give it to me, right? Now, I know we are connected to it, but we have to be very careful, all right? Now, let's, oh, man, okay. I'm just going to read the paragraph. I'm not going to be able to explain anything, okay? Everybody, just listen, all right? Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, God is going to make a new covenant. This covenant is not to be a legal covenant like the one which he established with Israel and Mount Sinai. The Messiah will not say you must be people of such and such character. Your manner of living must be after this or that fashion. You must do such and such works. No such doctrine will be introduced by the Messiah. He writes his law directly in the heart so that person living under him is a law unto himself. He is not coerced by forcing from without, but is urged from within. For I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. These words state the reason for the preceding statement. They are a summary of the gospel of Christ. Forgiveness of sin by the free grace of God for the sake of Jesus Christ. And anyone, therefore, imagining that Christ is a new lawgiver has brought us new laws, cancel the entire Christian religion. Now, I agree condemns the entire Christian religion. The only problem is, is they, they kind of jump and make it about us. So let me make it very clear. Why does God have to make a new covenant with Israel? Thank you. They cannot keep the old. They fall, fell short. And the old in, included what? They had some laws they had to keep, right? They couldn't, t- they couldn't keep it. So God is going to have to do everything for them. He's going to have to do everything for them. This is the way Christians perceive this. And and this is where I have a problem. All right. God's going to do everything for them. He's going to save them. He's going to forgive them. He's going to change them. He's going to do it all. It's all going to be the work of God. We call that what? Starts with an M. Monergism. Monergistic work. The work of how many? One. Okay. Now, here's how Christians take this. We take this covenant, right? And then we apply it to us. This is preached in churches everywhere. And this is how it's preached. Hey, Bobby, God's made a new covenant. You know what he's going to do? 
He's going to put his law in your heart. He's going to transform you and going to change you. How do you know that you've been changed and transformed? Because you now do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. If you don't do that, then your heart was never changed, therefore you're never saved. Now, again, what what becomes the immediate problem with this? Well, if that's true, then what kind of what what should be my requirement to show that Bobby is saved? Perfect. It should be perfection. If God changed me and did this, it should be perfection. Is Bobby going to meet perfection? No. And not only would it be not only would it require perfection, Diane just said it, it would show an infused righteousness, not an imputed righteousness. There's the second problem. So then what's the solution that most Christians come up with? Well, no, no, no. You don't have to be perfect. You just got to do this and you got to kind of do this and you kind of do that. Well, wait a minute. That can't prove what it's supposed to prove because God demands perfection. So imperfection cannot be proof of salvation if salvation is determined by action. Perfection can be the proof of salvation if I understand that Bobby is perfect in Christ. Now, the perfection the law demands, Bobby meets in Christ. Does that make sense? But what happens is the church takes this new covenant thing and applies it to us. That, hey, we have a new heart. We have a new, we're changed. We're transformed. We can do it. And while Christians preach that for for 2,000 years, that we have a new heart, we've been transformed, and we've been changed, and we all know the scripture they quote. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away. All things have become new. If that is true in any meaningful way, practically, what would be required? Absolute perfection. Because there would be no sinful nature left. Is that true? No, we still sin. So then how do we understand that we're a new creature and the old is gone and everything is new? And our position, and our position in Christ, that is true. And practice, what is Bobby? The same old Bobby. And people are like, he can't be the same old. So then they look for just some, what? Some subjective standard by which to judge him. And what Bobby should... He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. So see, that proves it. But no, I can find 50 other things that you're still doing that would prove that you are lost. Okay. Well, he's just, he's right here. He's just the one to pick on, right? Typically it's Emma, but she's way back there. So I just, you know, it, it just Bobby was the one to go with her today. All right. So does that, does that make sense? So what, what can we not do? We can't turn Jesus into what? A lawgiver. We can't turn the idea that my salvation is based on some law that Jesus gives because his law, if you want to say Jesus gives a law, he's not giving a law. He's ex- what was he doing in the Sermon on the Mount? Was he giving a new law? He was helping us understand this true spiritual understanding of the old one. He wasn't giving us a new one. He was just like, no, no, you misunderstand it, guys. You think you're good because you are fulfilling a certain external portion of it. But if you really look at it, you'll know that you are... They were condemned by the external. They were condemned by the internal. And guess what we are? Condemned by the same. So our only hope is in what Jesus accomplished. He didn't come to just give us... Again, I don't know why Christians want us to think that salvation is us getting a power to keep the law. But that's what Christians want us to believe salvation is, is that now you have the power. I wish I had the power... Because I would, I would not ever commit sin again. But I don't have the power. And neither does any of you. So what is our hope? It's in Christ. His finished work. His finished work. His fi- he didn't come to make you savable. came to save you. And he completed it in every way. From the beginning to the end. But th- I want you to see, this is just not some like, oh, just weird theory. We're literally talking about the distinction between Roman Catholicism and Christianity. And most of Christianity is operating in the stream that f- came from the Council of Trent. Yet claiming that we're, we're not Catholic. 
So I, I suggested it last week. I'm going to suggest it again. We need a coming out day. We need a coming out day where Christians just come out and admit we're Catholic. Right? I, I'm going to contact the, the bishop in San Angelo for the uh, Catholic diocese in Abilene and say, hey, I, I've got a new suggestion. I'm going to get all the Protestant churches to have a coming out day where they'll just leave the Protestant church and go to the Roman Catholic church because clearly that's what they are. I, I think you'll like my idea. I don't think the churches will like my idea. Uh, but I'm like, come on, just come on, come on. You're in a safe space. Just to come out and admit what you are. You're Catholic. Stop claiming to be something other than you're not, all right? And now maybe once you admit you're Catholic, then we can show you why Catholicism is a, an abhorrent understanding of the gospel. But if you, as long as you claim not to be Catholic, but you really believe in Catholicism, I, can very, I never can convince anyone that that's what they've done. And then the minute I try to convince someone, I immediately will be accused of being what? An antinomian. Or cheap grace, free grace, or some other horrible, you know, derogatory term. Well, they want to hold on to Catholicism. I'm like, no, the difference isn't between free grace or easy believism. No, the difference is between Catholicism and the gospel. Or, say it, infused righteousness or imputed righteousness. That's the distinction. And so now we are getting to see what happened in church history. Two streams that ultimately did what? Merged back together. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Everyone in this room, we have been all guilty of merging these two together in some way, shape, or form. Help us just be willing to admit our failures here and try our best to understand a proper distinction between law and gospel so that we can operate in the gospel mindset instead of a law mindset. Forgive us, and we thank you. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. And God's people said,